Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Father, you are so good to us. We do not deserve your goodness, but yet you designed to give it to us and your love for us. Lord, I pray that you open up our hearts this morning, and I pray that you would just pour down your love for us. If there's any here that are struggling or questioning your goodness, your character, Father, let us see through your Holy Spirit your goodness and your faithfulness to us, Lord. And Father, I pray that you just strengthen us as we worship, Lord, that you may accept our offerings of praise as we celebrate your presence, as we express our love to you, Father, that we would be encouraged and strengthened to walk in the way that you've called us to walk. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17 as we look at David, a man after God's own heart, a bold faith that leads to an improbable victory. Let me ask you, what is on your bucket list? What is it that you want to accomplish in your life. I have to tell you truthfully that there's not much left on my bucket list. I have been privileged to experience so much and to travel so far during my short journey on this earthly sod. I have traveled to distant mountains and tasted from cold, refreshing streams that few have ever seen. I have been left for dead in a very dry, hot desert, scourging for food and water from native plants. I have ridden horseback through hills and valleys that have never seen a human being. I have enjoyed listening to the wind whistle through the thick boughs of oak and maple and pine trees and blowing through the tall grassy knolls. I have stared down the evil rancher and his henchmen with just a steady glare, a quick hand, and a trusty revolver. I have hunted for beavers, raccoons, and other game animals in freezing rain and cold snow with mountain men who haven't seen civilization for years. I have sailed most of the seven seas with pirates and buccaneers and other merchants of the oceans. I have survived encounters with the Spanish, the British, the French, and even the Portuguese on those high seas. I have discovered new lands. I have battled severe storms, hurricanes, cloudy skies that obscured our navigation. I have survived shipwrecks, mutinies, scurvy, and hostile natives. I have been transported to Mars, you may not believe it, where I was introduced to kings and princes and princesses and warring tribes. I have met red Martians and green Martians and other worldly creatures that can only be dreamed of. I have flown in ships that were small and fast, and I have flown in ships that blocked out the very stars of the sky. In my 40s, I flew to a faraway planet called Arrakis, you may know as Dune, It is the only source of spice, a substance that extends one's lifespans for decades. It leads to greater vitality and a heightened awareness, yet is very addictive. And withdrawal from this spice is fatal. It is a planet that exists in a world of intrigue and corruption and political manipulation and giant sandworms. He who controls the spice controls the world. I don't have time to go into my adventures with the musketeers, the American Revolution, the man with the yellow hat and his curious monkey named George, Indiana Jones, the Enterprise, or James Bond, but I think by now you get the point. 
Growing up, I was an avid reader. I enjoyed reading about faraway places and larger-than-life heroes and villains. Books and movies to me were an escape. I could lose myself even today in those wonderful adventures and stories. And if you were like me, it was appropriate and normal to insert yourself either as a character or identify with the hero of the story. We want to be part of that story. We want to be like them, experience life like them, but in the safety of our own home. Many times when we read the Bible, we read it in the very same way. Especially if we see the Bible mainly as a collection of stories filled with heroes and villains and adventure. We read and listen to the stories and we begin to identify with the characters of them. The problem comes when we make the Bible stories about us, when we make ourselves the heroes of the Bible. Today's passage is a great example of that, David and Goliath. It's a story that everyone, young and old, knows. The Reverend John Schultz notes that David's duel with Goliath in which he killed the giant was what propelled him to instant fame. This most outstanding feat of bravery, he writes, by a teenage boy is one of the highlights of biblical history. It is filled with all the necessary ingredients of a blockbuster movie or an award-winning novel. A young, well-unknown teenager who has been anointed king, an imposing villain offering a duel to the death, and victory goes to the winner. It's a king who has been rejected and afraid, Two sworn enemies, nations, facing each other across a small valley. And a family intrigue is the backdrop of the story. Yet this is more than just a bedtime story with moral underpinnings. This is a true narrative consisting of real people in real time, in a real life timeline, with real world consequences. But it's even more than that. It's more than an age-old enemies at war. It's more than just one champion calling out and challenging another champion. It's more than just a war between nations or a war between fear and courage. It's more than just good versus evil or even the small versus the big. It is a cosmic battle with spiritual implications. It is a battle essentially of worldviews. It is a battle of who is God. Too many times that is missed in the reading and teaching of this passage. We have all heard this passage used as simple moral tales of good versus evil or the small guy facing the big guy. Fortunately, this narrative has been reduced to lessons that teach you to face your giants or defeating your Goliaths. In a Facebook post this week, I had asked some of you, what are some of the moral teachings that you've heard using this story? And here's some of the answers. If, by the way, you answered and you're in here, I apologize in advance. Don't use the world's armor to fight the Lord's battle, okay? Or the bigger you are, the harder you fall. God sometimes uses an unlikely soldier to fight for him. Good one. Uh, when you want something bad enough and your heart is pure, wonderful things can happen to you. Uh, that's a Hallmark card right there. When God wants to do the incredible, he starts with the difficult. When God wants to do the miraculous, he starts with the impossible. This person puts some thought into it. 
Or how about nothing is too big for God? Or God can get you through any challenge you are facing. This ought to be paired with Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ. But here's my favorite. This one I actually put so good I went ahead and put the man on staff. What are the five smooth stones in your life that you can use to strike down the Goliaths of your life? Now I don't know about you but that will preach. Unfortunately, many preachers and teachers have used that type of moral teaching or preaching when it comes to the story, the narrative of David and Goliath. Many preachers and teachers have asked, what or who is the giant in your life that must be defeated? Is it money problems? Is it health problems? Is it relationship problems? What is it that you're facing that you need courage and faith and boldness and God will help you defeat it? But I like what Pastor Matt Chandler, a pastor out of Texas, had to say about this passage. And you may want to take notes on this. Are you ready to write this down? You are not David. You are not the hero of the Bible. You need to realize that. When we read 1 Samuel 17 in the story of David and Goliath, you are not David. You are not the hero of the Bible. You see, the main point is not about you and your problems. As big as they may be and as much as you need to face it. It's not about your courage. It's not about your faith. But the main point of 1 Samuel 17, I'm going to give it to you now. The main point of this narrative is God. He's the hero of this story. The issue at hand is not some tall big guy who's trying to fight Israel, but the point, the issue at hand is the very honor of God's name and whether or not God is faithful to his promises. At the heart of Goliath's challenge is the very character of God. If you look on screen in a view of last week's passage, we learn that God's unexpected choice provides hope. But in Psalm 78, we read this last week, that God chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepholds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. And with an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. This is the David that we're learning about, an unexpected choice that God brought to do wonderful things. In today's passage, we find that the character of God is under attack by this Philistine. And it's going to be the bold faith of a young shepherd, boy, that leads to an improbable victory. Let's pray. Father, so open up our hearts and minds, Lord, that we may read this passage with fresh eyes and a new heart that's ready to receive what you have for us. Give us wisdom, discernment, and Lord, let us respond to your Holy Spirit's work. We pray this once again in your son's name. Amen. As we open to the pages of 1 Samuel 17, and I'm hopefully you're there, we read that the battle lines are drawn, with one foe facing the other foe, with just a small valley between the armies. The Philistine champion Goliath offers a champion. In verse 4, let's follow along. Let's turn and look at that, 1 Samuel 17. In verse 4, we get a description of Goliath. And there came out from the camp, the Bible tells us, of the Philistines, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. 
He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft, in verse 7, the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed about 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. Goliath was somewhere from 8 feet to 9 feet 6 inches tall. His armor weighed around 126 pounds without just his weight, just his armor. And his spear weighed 15 to 16 pounds, just counting the head, not the whole shaft. He was a physically imposing warrior. His very presence on that field was designed to intimidate the enemy. I believe he probably wasn't very agile. He probably hadn't been in a lot of fights as big bullies like that, but he was there to just be a man of force. In the next three verses, we read of his challenge. In verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistines and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Verse 10, And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. What a challenge. Imagine a man maybe nine foot six with all that armor and that spear coming down in that valley, and you're looking at this man. And I think even the landscape around would still not disguise the size of this man. And he asks a simple request. Listen, we all don't have to fight. We all have places to go and places to be and wives. Just give me one guy and we'll fight and winner take all. Israel's pitiful response is found in verse 11 as we continue to read. When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The presence and challenge of Goliath succeeded to physically and psychologically psych them out. He caused Israel to panic. The narrator goes on to tell us that for 40 days, Goliath would come out and taunt Israel two times a day with the same challenge. Now, there were several things that jumped out on this passage. I don't know about you, but here's just a, a few things, maybe four things that jumped out at me. The first one is where's Saul? Where in the world is King Saul? You might recall that the people wanted a king for this very purpose to fight for them. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel cried to Samuel, Give us a king. We want a king who may be our judge and go out before us and fight our battles. Well, they got him. Where is he? He's the one that stood head and shoulders above all the rest of Israel. Remember, they made a point of sharing that with us. So where is King Saul? The second point that I strike, struck me is, is just because the Philistines sent Goliath out with a champion's challenge did not mean that Israel had to agree. I mean, what's the gentleman agreement here? Goliath is a big man, but how agile could he have been? How many men could he have fought at one time? 
in Judges and in 1 Samuel, those two books themselves, we have read that Israel had been successful in fighting the Philistines. They had won some victories, especially now with Saul. If the Israeli army had just went charging towards Goliath, they would easily have overran him and killed him, most likely routing the Philistines who would have been in fear themselves. But what were they thinking? Just because they gave him the challenge doesn't mean they had to follow through. I mean, what's the rules in war? The third thing is that Goliath's weapons consisted of physical intimidation, emotional stress by coming out day in and day out, and psychological warfare. This is what I believe happened to the people of Israel. They allowed the presence of Goliath to obscure their view of God. He was nine feet, six inches tall. He had all this weapon. His voice was booming. He put out a challenge that just put fear in them, but they did not see God. They just saw Goliath. You and I do the same thing each and every day. There's many times we see our giants, if we want to use it, and it obscures our view. But what I see very quickly here is how they quickly forgot God's promises and God's faithfulness. Take your Bibles and turn now back to Joshua chapter 1. And here's where I say this, is that their view of Goliath obscured their view of God. In their view, God was much smaller than Goliath. In Joshua chapter 1, the first chapter, we're going to look at those first nine verses real quickly. This is when Joshua now takes Leadership, Moses has died. They're getting ready to cross over into the promised land. It says, after the death of Moses in Joshua chapter 1, the verse first, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over across this Jordan, you and all the people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Now that included the Philistine people, this land that God was giving them. Look at verse 3. Every place that the sole of your feet will tread, upon that I have given to you, just as I promised Moses. Look at verse 4. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man should be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to the fathers to give them. This is the land that I'm giving you. I swear I will never forsake you. You will have this land. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law that Moses, my servant, command you, do not turn from the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law should not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all according to that is written in them. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. Verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be what? Frightened. And do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. They had forgotten so quickly the promises of God. They allowed Goliath, a man in flesh and blood, 
to obscure their view of God. The same way God promises us in Hebrews 13.5. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. No matter what is going on or what challenge may face you, God is on our side. The writer of Hebrew goes on to say that we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Yet they, like us, forget the promises of God and begin to doubt the very character of God. So once again, Israel needs a champion. Saul has failed and been rejected. He's nowhere in this picture. He is in his tent being comfortable, wondering what to do. They are afraid, they are desperate, and they are without hope. What we will see once again, as we did last week, that God is going to send them hope in the person of David. An unexpected choice for king, and now an unexpected volunteer champion. Now, as we continue in this, I have been sharing with you, David served God in his generation. We looked at how David is a man after God's own heart and how David points to Christ. So we're going to do that this week. So if you're taking notes and you're trying to keep it together, I want to show how this passage shows how David served God in his generation. Look on the screen. You'll see the first one is David served God by serving his fathers and his brothers. It starts very simple, this story does. David was not at the battlefield during those initial 40 days. David, as the youngest son of Jesse, is way too young for war, and he's at home watching the family sheep. However, after some time, David is going to be sent out by his father to find out how his three older brothers are doing. David was to bring a care package of food and probably medicine and other things to his brothers. You and I must remember that this was no standing army at this time. There was no professional uh, Israeli army. The troops had to provide their own rations and things of that. So we pick up the narrative in verse 19. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper, and he took the provisions and went, as Jesse his father had commanded him. And he went to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. So David comes as it's happening once again. And as Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, and he ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. So he grabs the food. He hears the call to come to the battle line. He drops off the food with the guy who watches it, and he runs to find his brothers at the front lines. Verse 23, and as he talked with them, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines, and he spake the same words as before, and David heard them. This day number 40, day number 41, whichever day it was, is just like the ones previous, except that David has now entered the scene. And the second way that we see that David serves his God and his generation is that he served God, number two, by encouraging the men to defend God's honor. He is going to hear what Goliath is saying, and he is not going to stand for it. Look at verse 24. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. What did they expect? Did they expect 
by the way, this is just a side note. Did they expect that this day was going to be different than any other day? Why is it that they keep flying from him? But they do. They were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and will make his father's house free in Israel. There's a reward for conquering this man. Look at verse 26, and this becomes important. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the approach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? If you're there, you may want to underline that phrase. And the people answered him the same way, So shall it be done to the man who who kills him. He gets riches, he gets Saul's daughter, and his father's house becomes free, which probably meant free from taxes, free from having to serve. At verse 26, we see David's words for the first time. He speaks for the first time in recorded history. And appropriately, his first words in Scripture is in defense of a holy God. His words demonstrate a young man full of boldness and offended by the challenge of Goliath. He served God by encouraging the men to defend God's army. Who is this man? You can almost see him looking around. What's going on? Who is this guy? Why are you afraid of him? But with number three, we also see that David served God by volunteering to fight Goliath. He was not going to let it stand. Verse 31, and when the words that David spoke were heard, they were repeated before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant, speaking of himself, will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. David served God in his generation. One, by just simply serving his father and brothers. Okay, I'm too young to go to battle, so I'll just do what I can. If it meant bringing food to my brothers, that's what I'll do. But then when he sees the challenge, he steps up by encouraging Come, let's one, some of you must stand against him. And when that failed, he then said, here am I, send me. Echoing the words that Isaiah will write years later. But David, as you and I think of David, we think of him as this bold, courageous man. We think of him as one that people must have listened to him and said, wow, David is going to do it. Maybe there was a, a roar of approval. Of David, David, he's our man. If he can't do it. Nobody can. Where in the world did that come out of? I'm not even sure. <laughs> David, though, is not without his detractors. And those who view him as weak, 
just like you and I, many times others can cause us to doubt ourselves. And as you look at that portion of Scripture, I don't know if you caught it, but there are three people that we see, two we've seen, one we're going to see, that look at David and say, there is a weak man. The first one is his brother, his brother Elib. He questions his character and motivation. I don't know if we read it verse, I don't think we read it earlier, but look at verse 28. When David is saying, who shall kill this man? When he's encouraging the people, his brother says, when he spoke to the man, his anger actually was kindled against David. He said, David, why have you come down here anyway? Whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? You see, he's belittling David. He's belittling those few sheep. He belittles what David does. Why are you even here? Who's watching that little responsibility that we've given you? Look what he says, though. He says, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. Your questions betray you, is what he's saying, for you have really just come down to see the battle. He's questioning his motivation, his character. You're just some eager little boy who's not where you should be. Go back home. King Saul questions his competency, whereas his brother questions his character and motivation. King Saul questions his competency. We read it in verse 33. You're not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. For you're but a youth. He's been a man of war. You're not competent enough to do so. Then thirdly, as we're going to see here in a moment, Goliath questions his appearance. When the Philistine in verse 42 looks upon David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Why are you sending a model out here to fight me? Give me a warrior. Yet in all this, we see that David was successful in serving God. And if I could take a side note. Obviously, what we've been sharing here is that you and I are to serve God in our generation. And while we serve God, many times is mundane as just serving our fathers and our brothers and our sisters. Sometimes we serve God by encouraging others to take up arms and follow God and challenging and growing in faith. And many times it may be in taking up ourselves and being that front person. But you may face people who are going to question your competency. They're going to question your character and question your appearance. But you are to serve God regardless. As we read through this passage, we see that King Saul gives David his armor, but it's either too big or David's not comfortable with them since he never uses them. But either way, he chooses to forego the armor and he prepares for a battle in a way more suitable to his experience. In verse 40, as we continue on in the story, we read that David takes his staff in hand. He chooses those five smooth stones from the brook and he puts them in his shepherd's pouch with a sling in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. David was ready to put his life on the line in serving God. And let me share with you, that is what's going to be asked of you. Maybe not in the very presence of his experience. In verse 40, as we continue on in the story, we read that David takes his staff in hand. He chooses those five smooth stones from the brook, and he puts him in his shepherd's pouch with a sling in his hand, 
and he approached the Philistine. David was ready to put his life on the line in serving God. And let me share with you, that is what's going to be asked of you. Maybe not in the very presence of some enemy that can truly, literally destroy your life, but in some way in which you serve God will cost you dearly. So not only did David serve God his generation, but the second thing that we've been looking at is David had the heart of God. As we've seen through these words of David, his offense was not at Goliath himself and his presence and his 101 mano a mano challenge or even the Philistines behind them, but the fact that Goliath dishonors God. We see this in Goliath's words and David's response. Goliath says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. David says, well, surely he's come to defy Israel. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy? Again, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And when he faces him, he says, the God of the armies of Israel whom you defied will save me. See, he was jealous for the name of God. He had the heart of God in the fact that he recognized that God himself is jealous for his name. God reveals that he is God, the great I am. In Exodus, he said, you shall worship no other God whose name is jealous. He is a jealous God. Psalms tells us, not to you, O Lord, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but it's to your name is glory given. It's for the sake of your steadfastness, love, and your faithfulness. Leviticus, then the commandment said, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. When he defied the armies and the living God, this should have called all of Israel and Saul himself to march down and put this man to death. Goliath could not stand before them. God has already promised that the Philistines themselves would not be able to stand against God. Isaiah tells us, for my own sake, God writes, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. He had the heart of God because he had a heart for God's name. He knew who God was. He was offended at one who would use God in the wrong way or cause doubt and uncertainty. In God's people. You see, Yahweh is the living God. He's not made of wood or stone. In Joshua, they had warned, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girishites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. They should have never doubted the faithful promises of God. Let me bring you real quickly. Stay with me onto the screen. Because in here, I want to bring you back to a story that involved Israel and the Philistines. The Philistines at one time had a war, and they were able to capture the Ark of the Covenant. They brought the Ark of the Covenant back into one of their temples with their god named Dagon. The writer tells us, then the Philistines took that Ark, and they brought it to the house of Dagon, and they set it up besides Dagon. So here's this idol, their god, the Philistine god, and then right before it, as a, and in a lower position, they put the Ark of Covenant down below him. But look at in verse 3. 
And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon, their God, had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. It was in a prostrate position before him. Okay, maybe there was an earthquake or maybe something shook it and it fell off its pedestal. So they took Dagon, put him back in his place. But in verse 4, when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, just as it had the day before. But this time the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off from the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left. As you take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 44, we see here of a picture already where the Philistine God is laid prostrate before the most living holy God. In Isaiah 44, I'll just summarize this for you. We see that here the prophet is writing about a man, a carpenter, who cuts down a tree. And out of that wood, first he's the one who cuts it down. It's crimson. It. it says in verse 15 that the tree becomes fuel for man. He takes part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread. Isaiah 44, I think, I don't know if I ever told you that, verse 15. And then he takes it and he makes a god and he worships it as an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in fire. The other half he uses it to, so he can eat meat with it. And then the rest he uses as his own god. He says, you know, in verse 18, they need know not nor discern for he has his eyes shut. They cannot see that the true living God. David had the heart of a God because he knew and understood that God was a living God. He was not a God made of wood and stone. He was not a God that was made out of some type of marble. But he was a living God, a spirit, one who was true. Not one of many's, but a true God. Let me ask you, do you have the heart of God? Are you jealous for his name? Are you trusting in him and relying on his promises? Or are you like the foolish carpenter who is kneeling before idols of your own making? Who's the living God in your life? You see, it's not just David's experience that qualify him to fight Goliath, but it's his heart. Unlike his king, his brothers, and his countrymen, David had a different worldview. He did not hear just the threats. He heard theological statements coming out of Goliath's mouth. He's not concerned with Goliath's outward appearance. His weapons of war did not cause him to fear. David will rely on God's protection, God's providence, and God's promises just as he had in the past. It's neither his luck, his skill, or his audacity, but his bold assurance that the Lord has delivered you into my hands. He will deliver me from the hands of this Philistines. Let's go to verse 41. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth and ruddy and handsome in appearance. In verse 43, this becomes important. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. You see, we see that Goliath here threatens David with the power of his false god. 
The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air. What we're about to hear, see now, is like almost like a cosmic trash talking taking place. They're going to be exchanging threats and words, but as you read them, they're not just threats and words of physical threats, but they're ones with theological importance and statements. He says, I'm going to kill you and curse you by my gods. Listen to what David says in verse 45. He says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you defied. This day, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all his assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. David's speeches are theological in nature. He understands that the battle is the Lord. He had an understanding heart. He asked, who is man that uh, compared to God? For he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy? Who is a man that he would defy God? Job learned this hundreds of years before. Who am I that I can approach a holy God? The psalmist says, who is man that God is mindful of him? David comes and he's encouraging the people and he's trying to bring it in perspective. Wait a second, why do you think this man can defeat a holy God? He trusts in God's past protection and providence and promises. And not only that is David has the correct perspective on who is truly being challenged. You come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the living God, the Lord of hosts. They both believe that their victory is assured by whom they worship. The gods of the Philistines or the living God of Israel. For 40 days, Goliath had challenged Israel to fright and cursed the name of the Lord. But as we read verses 48 and 49, this battle is going to be very short and decisive. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David runs quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David puts his hand in his bag. He took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone stuck into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. David Ralph Davis comments that stones would range from two to three inches in diameter. And when flung by a seasoned warrior, could it reach speeds of 150 miles an hour. David's aim is steady. His aim is sure. The rock finds the weak spot in Goliath's armor, and he is defeated. Not only is he defeated by a young man with a stick and a stone, but his head is cut off of his own sword. As we see, David prevails over the Philistine in verse 51. He's killed, but there was no sword in David's hand. In verse 51, David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of the sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. David's courage and faith here will embolden the Israel army to action in verse 51. And when they saw that the champion was dead, they fled. And in verse 52, the men of Israel and Judah with a shout pursued the Philistine as far as Gath. In verse 53, the people of Israel came back 
from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camp. Israel experienced a great victory that day through the faith of David. The killing of David will cement his reputation and place in Saul's court. It helped him earn the love of his people and the jealousy of Saul. So we come this morning, we're going to end there this morning. My message continues, and I think it's important for us to get the full message and the orb of this message. As we come to a close, I want us to think, David served God in his own generation. First, by doing the simplest and mundane of tasks. As we see, he continues to have the heart of God by having the worldview, the correct worldview, of truly what's going on in this battle. It's more than just flesh and blood. As we'll see next week, it takes cosmic battles. What's going on here is more theological than it is really physical. But as we continue in the life of David, let us realize that this story is going to point to something much greater than just David or our giants or our Goliaths or how we defeat them. It's pointing to something greater than. And that greater than is Jesus. Next week, we'll look at the next part of that passage. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'd like for you to take a moment to pause, to consider, to pray and to respond to what is it that God is calling you to do this morning. Are you serving God in your generation? Do you have the heart of God? Do you recognize that the battles, the giants, the things that you're facing in life are truly not physical, emotional, or mental, but are truly things that are against the character and the person and the promises of God? Would you ask for God to open your mind and heart to that reality this morning in your prayers? Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your goodness towards us and your kindness. This story is so familiar to us that many times we read right past it. Lord, let us see the truth in there. That you are the living God. The living most holy God. And Father, I pray that our lives, that we would serve you in our generation. Embolden us. Give us the courage and faith, the strength to get going in our life and serving you. Show us how we do that in our very lives day by day. Help us to encourage others to continue that life. And Father, let us be willing to volunteer ourselves to be your champion. Father, I pray that you would continue to give us a heart that reflects the heart of Christ. The one that reflects the heart of you in total submission and love. Strengthen us for this this week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.